Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Colonel Michael Majessi, the Air Force Intelligence's Chief Information Officer. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, sure. Great. Glad to be here. And uh, thank you for having me. You spoke at an FC Nova event, and I thought your speech was really well done. Uh, I had tons of follow-ups. And so this is kind of that follow-up from that speech. I know you were a very popular guy after the word, so uh, I appreciate the fact that we're able to connect here. I, I think folks may not really understand your role as the intelligence community CIO for the Air Force. You also wear a bunch of different hats. So let's just start at the beginning. Let's discuss your role. What does it mean to be the Air Force intelligence community CIO, chief data officer, and, and the other hats you wear? The Air Force is, has a one of the 18 intelligence elements in the intelligence community. After 9-11, they went and created a uh, Intelligence Reform Act in 2004, which set up the DNI role, uh, the Director of National Intelligence. And under that, basically, it was in order to try to get the intelligence community to better communicate amongst itself and flow intelligence between all of these disparate organizations like the FBI, Homeland Security, Department of Defense, the various organizations all have intelligence elements and when they did this new law, they actually optimized all those elements by bringing them together under one with a governance structure that spanned all the departments in the federal government that have intelligence elements. So there was a second order effect of optimizing the intelligence elements. It, it suboptimized the parent organization because those parent organizations, whether it was in Department of Defense or Department of State, whatever, have you know, standards and ways of doing business, which now separated out the intelligence arm of those and standardized them across where there was a ICCIO specifically role created. And the CIOs under the heads of the IC elements received their governance standards, strategy, architecture, services of common concern from the intelligence community more so now. And so my role is derived from the authorities of the Director of National Intelligence through the head of the IC element in the Air Force, which is Lieutenant General Lauterbach, to me in an appointment memo. And that then gives me the roles and responsibilities underneath the ICCIO to fulfill all those CIO requirements. It is not, and it's, that's why it's odd, an appointment under the Secretary of Defense or the DOD CIO. It is under the IC chain uh, of command and the IC chain of authorities. And so we are, Gerald Lauterbach and I specifically are accountable for those roles and responsibilities to the DNI. And interestingly, the data was specifically called out for the intelligence data to be governed regardless um, by the DNI. That wasn't a shared responsibility. So from a CIO perspective, all of our methods of doing business fall under the IC directives more so. But my job is to bridge that because we're here to support the Air Force and the Air Force requirements. So we have to know what the differences are in those standards and be able to bridge those communities and support back and forth to be able to push data from the IC to the Air Force and back from the Air Force to the IC in a seamless manner and to secure that data via an IC standard and format. So it is a bit of a separation 
uh, here that Congress has deliberately done that makes this a bit of a challenge for the, from the Air Force perspective and from the owning parent organization perspective, but is done in, with good intention and has achieved positive benefits for the Intel community to come together across the board. My appointment memo includes not only CIO, but chief data officer as well. And I'm the cybersecurity authorizing official for all the Air Force intelligence communities. So that includes all the SCI level data, which is categorized as intelligence data. And so we are growing. My organization is uh, appointing and, and hiring new. And so we will par- start to see some of these hats flow into full-time other positions like the chief data officer. But my staff for now is basically encompassing all those facets. All right. I appreciate the explanation. These things always are, are, are interesting because you serve, if you will, two bosses, right? You have the IC CIO, but you also have the uh, Air Force CIO and, and the folks there. How do you strike that right balance? Uh, and same thing with wearing the CDO hat, same thing with the cyber authorizing official. There's a lot that's, uh, that's being balanced by in your current position. Yes, it is. It's a challenge because it's not like uh, anybody has enough uh, meetings. We have two meetings for every meeting because there's an IC version and there's an Air Force version and sometimes just a DOD version. So we have to go to, for example, an IC Zero Trust working group. Then we go to an Air Force Zero Trust working group. Uh, We go to double so that we can bridge those two worlds, right? And so um, we default to the IC strategies, standards, governance and must interoperate and know what the Air Forces are. And as we are doing Air Force new instructions and regulation, we have to ensure that it's informed by those intelligence equities and there is no inadvertent you know, shifts of authorities and things that confuse people when instructions come out. So that is full-time job as well, to be able to ensure that everything stays clear and the lines are clear. We have a new not so necessarily new, but I'd say a function called the national manager that has been taking more of a a role, um, active role. And so that third hat that is at Cybercom and director of national or, or the director of the NSA is also the national manager. And that's where the two worlds come together, actually. I see in DOD where the DOD has Cybercom and uh, JFHQ Doden and all of that come together underneath that national manager and then the IC's world of security coordination center and incident integrated defense and all of that come together there. And you'll see national manager mandates that are clearly when they come out and they say the IC elements will report this way and the DOD elements will report that way. And so actually a lot of legal activity that has to happen when you put out these kinds of mandates, because it's can get confusing. All right. So the national manager, I have to admit, I don't think I've heard of that before. Is it, is this a new, what, what do they do? I guess just at that very high so, level. Yeah. It's, I wouldn't say it's, it's new, but I would say it's taking on a more active role because we're seeing more national security manager mandates like NSM. I don't know if you've heard of NSM eight, that was a big one where they mandated zero trust and that mandate flows to both the IC and the DOD. So under that, there was a number of mandates, for example, raise the bar compliance for cross-domain solutions. That was to affect all of the the enterprise across both. And so in that way, that that role has started to take on more of an active 
policy type, and not even just policy, but mandates. We're seeing mandates coming out from there more than ever. All right. I appreciate the explanation. And, and come on, Colonel, of course, I've heard of the zero trust mandate, right? Maybe not <laughs> NSMA, but like, <laughs> this is sure. This, we, we live and breathe ZTA. Come on. <laughs> yes. I think we should have a quarter jar every time we say zero trust and have exactly. a quarter in there. Let's go back to uh, your roles, of course. You mentioned that we're in multiple hats. So from a CIO's perspective, a typical day, a typical, there's no typical day, I know, but the things you work on are what, uh, and then maybe walk us through the CDO and the cyber authorizing official, just at a very high level about kind of which each of those roles kind of encompass daily, monthly, weekly, however you can kind of characterize it. Because I know the beauty of your job is every day is different. The chief data officer, very much like the CIO, has a council. So there's an IC CIO council that I'm a member of. There's an IC chief data officer council. Underneath that council, there are multiple working groups for various types of, of subjects. I'm also actually the partner co-chair for the uh, National Geoint Data and AI Subcommittee under NGA. So uh, Mr. Mark Munsell and I co-chair that subcommittee. And so there are various forums and governance boards that the chief data officers um, attend together to collaborate and work together to make sure that we're able to push across standards in data because data is really the lifeblood of all of this. I would say it's all about data. When we talk about any of the other facets, whether you're talking about networks or cloud or applications, it's, it's really all about the data. And cybersecurity is now even more so focused from a network perspective down to a data perspective with, with zero trust. And so we really need to turn our world from thinking about things uh, from a network industrial age kind of process perspective to a data centered world and how we actually build all around that from our IT to our business processes need to really be focused in the heart of data you know, positions like chief data officers growing and becoming codified in their roles and responsibilities. The IC is going to put out the uh, ICD 504 here soon, which will actually codify what the chief data officer roles and responsibilities are and the subtypes of um, roles and responsibilities like data stewards and things. So we're seeing this movement. And I would say from an IC perspective, We've always more so had that because data has always been the lifeblood of intelligence uh, and how we protect data and compartmentalize it and things. I have had a, a head start, I would say, comparatively to the rest of DOD. Compartmentalization and how you control who gets what access to what data has already had a, a kind of a foundation by necessity to build off of more so than, than elsewhere. The one thing I just have a quick follow up on on that is the IC 504. Is this building off of the ODNI or intelligence community data strategy that I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, came out earlier this year? Yes. So the data strategy did come out, uh, as did the zero trust strategy recently. And the ICD 504 will build on that is a directive, which is what we will follow is very similar to an Air Force instruction or a DODI uh, to create regulation under the IC on how we will do these things. And it will be informed by uh, the, the strategy and the working groups that we're in, uh, which are developing the content for that. And then the other side of it is you mentioned you right now wear multiple hats, but you're going to be hiring hopefully some more people are expanding your staff. Can you talk a little bit about that plan? And, and is it uh, more uh, 
like yourself, a colonel, more service members or more civilians or a little bit of both? A little bit of both. We have taken on a lot of new responsibilities in the past couple of years that never existed before. For example, we're the lead for the intelligence cloud uh, activity. So that cloud office, which is quite large and a huge part of our day, never had bodies assigned to do that from a headquarters perspective. While we had stood up a cloud office back, uh, you know, starting the discussions in 2015 really got the office going in 2017 uh, and then since been maturing. And now that cloud office called DAF Cloudworks is over 100 people. Our headquarters staff has not had a commensurate kind of scaling. So we've been doing a lot of reserve mandates, which has been great because reservists come from industry as well. And they're bringing a lot of wealth of experience and outside thought into my workforce. But it's also surge workforce that's not really sustained and programmatically in place. So it brings a lot of risk. So we need to backfill our our workforce to be able to handle things that we've we've added. So cloud is just one of them. Artificial intelligence is a whole nother area I have in my portfolio that never had people assigned. We need to plus up and make that a sustainable capability for the long term from the headquarters level. We also have the, obviously the chief data officer. I'm dual hatted it right now. That's not something that you should do as an additional duty. That is a full-time job. And we should have the appropriate manning to do that with the staff underneath it. So there's a number of things that, you know, we always did cybersecurity. We've done, you know, networks. We had other parts of our portfolio, but there's also a lot of growth uh, that has been occurring here that we have not actually had institutionalized into our into our workforce. So that is coming. We have some FY25 inputs that should see some some civilian growth. We have contractor growth and we've gotten already a couple billets. So even my billet is going to is going to go up to a higher level rank after me and under, under a civilian and they'll have the the colonel still but Obviously, this this position is normally across the other ICCIOs a higher uh, ranked individual, um, and so we've kind of a little bit under understaffed it, and so we're trying to correct that. I would say uh, now with Space Force as well having an intelligence element, and that by default happening a lot under me, uh, without having a Space Force ICCIO appointed and all the functions and roles, I have basically two elements at this point, and uh, that growth just has not occurred to appropriately do all of that. Uh, do you have a sense yet about how many people you'll grow by? Is it, are you, gonna, you mentioned 25 inputs, so some civilian growth there, but assuming you get budget, assuming everything comes together so, like you want it yeah, to. Yeah, there's a lot of assumptions there. If, if all the plans and inputs go as planned, it's pretty significant, I would say. So we, we will more than double if uh, we have the everything we asked for. There's a lot of portfolio management that is not able to be done appropriately without the manpower we have. So that's a that's a big gap area that we're looking to fill as well. So um, from a portfolio management perspective and from the various new types of activities we're doing, there's quite a bit of, of growth required, which is also difficult because as you know, the Pentagon doesn't have a lot of seats. So we're also looking for skiff space. Uh, as it is right now, I have uh, three people for every position. Uh, so I have to rotate uh, just because of the, the lack of seating. Colonel, on that note, let's take a quick break. We come back, we'll continue our conversation. My guest today is Colonel Michael Majesse, the Air Force Intelligence Chief Information Officer. 
I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Colonel Michael Majesse, the Air Force Intelligence Chief Information Officer. You mentioned some contractor growth. Are we talking about new contracts or existing contracts that will expand? Is there anything you can kind of get ahead of uh, all the calls that you may be getting now? <laughs> yeah, so there is a contract turnover that just occurred. We had a number of smaller contracts at the headquarters level that they've consolidated into a larger contract, and that's actually been let and starting to field the bodies that they're going to put in the positions. And with that, uh, we have some some additional like enterprise architecture types and things like that that are uh, built into the new contract uh, for us. And so that is already done. Uh, I still do have sources of contractors from other places. So I share contractor um, with another division in A26, which is actually very beneficial to matrix that person because it brings the and the ISR expertise and intelligence integration uh, into the IT organization. And we really do get a lot of synergy out of that, getting tied in really closely with who we're supporting. We also have some, we used to have a shared contract and still do for some of our um, strategy advising, which we shared with the Air Combat Command. And uh, we have some other folks like our cloud office and things that are helping us put people in places that will support them uh, adequately. And and so uh, I'm able to utilize funding uh, from other places to help augment ours from our central funding source at the headquarters to do the job. All right. Well, I appreciate that because I know that, you know, as I said, a lot of vendors do listen. So I'm trying to keep your email box a little lower, a little lighter, so uh, they don't try to uh, pitch you too much. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, the, the other, the last thing on the workforce side, and, and then I would definitely want to get into some of the priorities that you're working on, some of the focus areas. Workforce is, is co- consistently a big challenge. Uh, are, are there things you're doing to ensure the current workforce and the future workforce have the skill sets you need? Again, whether it's cloud management or security or AI, or you pick the area. And workforce is a tough one, I would say, of all the technology questions I could be answering. That's one of the harder ones to solve. But we have, through an enterprise contract, we have access to this thing called Digital University, which is a great resource for training and then really on your own at your own pace. That The problem with that is, you know, you, everyone's got a day job and they're really busy. And so finding the time to actually go to digital university is difficult. But when you do find those proactive individuals that really have a a desire to do it, then the second half of that is how do they not get frustrated because they're not actually using what they're learning? So how do we then find those individuals and vector them into appropriate places to be able to utilize their skills? Uh, Because this new digital infrastructure, you know, commercial cloud-based technology and, and all that's built on top of it is fundamentally a different way of delivering IT services. And it is a fundamental different tech stack than we what we've always deployed. And so there is a, almost a segregation of our workforce from what we have done and need to continue to do to do our day-to-day business as is. And then there's the, the new that we have a subset of people now that are separated out and how we start to blend that and make the the two worlds come together is a challenge, right? Because everyone has that full-time, more than full-time workload. And to be able to set that time aside deliberately takes individual commanders and bosses to take that as a priority and make that happen. And also higher level direction to say, well, what is it that we want them to be able to do? And 
you know, those are those are tough questions. So I, I can't say we've solved the problem, but there are definitely new hires coming into the Air Force already digitally savvy. They're coders. They have a strong data understanding. And it's this new workforce that we got to make sure it doesn't get frustrated and leaves and enable them to be able to do these types of things at the edge. When we talk about that, enabling them different technologies, low code, no code kind of um, uh, automation of workflows, being able to do scripts and things, and being able to understand that the lexicon is different. So when do scripts become apps? When do data platforms that have user-defined operational pictures on them that have names become apps? apps that need accreditations and all of that. So a lot of people will use the word app to describe a lot of different things that aren't really in my mind, actual full stack applications. Um, and so then you, you go down these roads of, well, who's approved this thing to be used. And so enabling the workforce by ensuring that the lexicon is clear and that they are empowered to do certain things and where in my mind, these kinds of things happen are if you are doing them under your user privileges, your user capabilities, as if you were doing it manually, um, but you're now automating it to do it faster and at scale, then that's that's up to you and you can do that. You, you really have limited the damage that you could actually perform. If you're doing these elevated permissions and you're able to actually impact things outside of your area there, then now we're starting to talk about needing to have some oversight of that and some accreditation kind of work. But also the platforms that are put in place to enable these things, like our data platforms, these various problems that they're solving on there, visualizing that data, running some analytics on it, that's completely fine. And that specific user's area that they have defined, I call those user-defined operational pictures. That is not an application that I need to go into and say, we need to go through a whole accreditation process with that. Uh, I, I make that akin to everyone having like an Intel link or a SharePoint link, a SharePoint you know, website that they've done some scripting on and, and done some visualizations. Every single one of those SharePoint sites doesn't need an accreditation. It's not an application, even if you put a name on it. Uh, it's actually running on the underlying SharePoint. So if we, we make sure the lexicon is good, we won't hang up people unnecessarily in the bureaucracy and let them move forward faster and do these kinds of things um, and try to help not frustrate them um, as much as possible and get them into paths that will let them use their skills and grow them. So lots of work to be done still, but those are the kinds of things that we're doing. And I know the digital university that Air Force is doing with Space Force has uh, been a very popular effort, and uh, hopefully folks are taking advantage of it because I've heard very good things about it. The last piece, and then I definitely want to jump into your priorities, is you mentioned the, the other hat you wear as a cyber authorizing official, and this goes back to something you were just saying about ensuring folks aren't frustrated by you being the you know CIO of no or the cyber official of no, but how to strike that right balance. And that, and it's harder because you deal with classified information. You you deal with top secret information. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that role, just briefly, about as a cyber authorizing official. You're looking at applications. You're looking at platforms. What, what do you? What's what's kind of again? What's the role there? Okay, great. And I, and I love your talk about you know the the culture of no, because I, I would like to touch on that for a second, because normally what you'll find is that in large organizations, you have levels of hierarchy that you have to go through, but every single level seems to only have the permission to say no, not yes. And so in that case, you have a lot of wickets to go through. And as you 
get farther away from the problem that you're trying to solve, the impact of saying no becomes far less. Uh, the impact to the person is far less. So you have a higher chance of getting a no answer because the impact of saying yes is actually just more risk to the person or more work to the person or more resources to the person. And they're not seeing that. So the flat hierarchies that we see generally working better get to a point where you say, if you can't say yes, then you don't really have a no, you have a recommendation. And it, we have to get to the understanding of who is the decision maker here. And so our bureaucracy is really set up to have a lot of no answers and digital infrastructure needs to shift the mindset because every time we add new work, it's not necessarily more cost and more resources and bodies to the person saying yes, because the way we do this is a fully burdened cost model. So as a service, we scale elastically and the people asking for the permission to do something are coming with the funded requirement, which is actually scaling out not only the technology, but the workforce on the back end. And so the dynamic is shifted. And so actually the more funded requirements we get on these capabilities, the more others can scale them out and get benefit from them. So it's a complete flip. Um, Cybersecurity wise, we have to really take a culture and shift it from flat file repositories and reviews of those on a periodic basis into live data and people that understand how to read code and to go into the code repositories and understand where the production is getting spun up from under what policies and audits of those policies to ensure that they're actually happening to the specifications we expect but more so in a live manner, a dashboarded manner, and a manner that understands that the production environment is in flux constantly. And just looking at that specifically at that point in time is gonna do you very little compared to understanding where it's coming from and understanding that we are building automation pipelines and those pipelines have certain types of tools and capability that we have to understand as security professionals so that when it goes through those pipelines, it actually does the checks that we would have been doing and we can trust the result that comes out the other end so that we don't actually have to be doing all of that ourselves. We can trust the pipelines because we understand how the pipeline is built. We understand what it's doing and we understand the checks when they come out are can be trusted and then we can have reciprocity with other pipelines as well. Because generally in reciprocity agreements, we're looking at the body of evidence all over again. But if we understand once how a pipeline is built and the body of evidence has been approved that they're doing this to the specifications we also require, then those pipelines should also be able to provide a certificate to field that we accept and can move those containers to another environment to be able to be used without having a lot of security on top of that um, done and move that in a very seamless fashion in a CICD pipeline that can move through cross-domain solutions and automatically provide those updates multiple times a day. And the only way we're gonna be able to do that at scale is not with humans, but with automation. And so our cybersecurity workforce really has to get into this world and understand it, and as do the authorizing officials. The authorizing officials cannot be stuck in doing things the old industrial age way. And so how we do this new way of CICD pipelines and reciprocity agreements and live data dashboarding and understanding how to go into like GitHub and and seeing what actual is happening here with the different programs uh, and making that our source of truth versus the 
Excel spreadsheet that was uploaded to EMAS, you know, six months ago. Um, this is going to give us a much better result, a higher level of understanding of what's going on in the environment, more of that continuous ATO that we all desire, and um, a way to speed and scale delivery for our customers. So that is, that's really where we're trying to flow things. We have a lot of work that's been done in this area. We still have some work to do, but uh, we do have CICD pipelines with CTFs, with reciprocity agreements. I now have three platforms that I have that I can um, pull in certificates to field and software from NGA, from NRO, from platform one. We have feeders from other platforms like Kessel Run, uh, Space Force Gravity. So to the Intel, Air Force Intel's platform, Odin, we can actually bring containerized software to our environment with very little cybersecurity rework. And, and it's very automated. So these kinds of things with our our team, which is awesome. Uh, they are going out there and they are learning. We have so many uh, certification courses and things for them, and they are actually on the joint test team with the Intel community. So every single time a new cloud managed service comes out and we want to get that accredited to be operating at different classified levels, we have an IC joint test team that gets together and we enjoy reciprocity with whatever that test team puts out and we provide bodies into that test team and they actually get a lot of good training and understanding on how all of this works when they do that as well. So it's good for us, it's good for them and they come back. And so when we're talking about using these kinds of services and these advanced technologies, they have a very good understanding of how it works underneath the covers. I really appreciate you talking about reciprocity. That's something that I know has been an ongoing challenge. I, uh, I know the Army CIO is working on a memo around reciprocity. I'm hoping to talk to uh, Mr. Garcia about this as well. And I know that we've talked about this through CMMC and FedRAMP, and you know, you, you put in the, uh, the four-letter word uh, around it. But it's good to see it's actually happening. Colonel, on that note, let's take a quick break. We come back, we'll continue our conversation. My guest today is Colonel Michael Majesse, the Air Force Intelligence Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Colonel Michael Majesse, the Air Force Intelligence Chief Information Officer. Let's talk about your priorities. What's on your plate? What are you trying to get done over the next six or nine months? Overall, we're trying to do a migration from successful agile pilots into sustainable programs but at the same time, trying to do it in a way that does no harm. And that's super complicated and hard because we're trying to fit something that is almost a square peg in a round hole. And so how do we take these almost crowdsourced activities that get little R requirements from all of the different locations to add to a capability and then scale that capability out to others and it continues to grow and successfully year after year to the point where now you've got something that is fairly large. It could be, you know, over a hundred million dollars in value, has no program office and it continue and now is dependent on so many thousands of people's missions. And so it is a successful model that we're doing over and over and over again in a different way than is outside of the construct of a normal process to deliver IT services that normally starts with like a big R requirement that then goes through some palm process capability and then a program office is designated once the funding gets there and they go through this whole milestone decisions and, and all of the, the activity that comes with that, which is 
quite tremendous, where we have a fundamentally different way to do this that is much more successful. But the agile process, and depending on whichever agile process you subscribe to, all of them have similar fundamental aspects to them, don't fit into this construct. But then you, you have something that is seen as high risk, right? Because uh, you don't have it into the institutionalized system. So we are talking about as a service model, customer funded capabilities, which fundamentally we don't have a lot of those. We usually have centrally funded capabilities. We have a customer base that is larger than any normal program office's customer base, because normally that program office will have a certain finite set of uh, users that they're focused on. In this case, we have customer funding from all over the place, which has really been the goal for IT services. People have been wanting this forever, but we don't actually have an institutional way to deliver what people have been wanting. So I'll give you an example of like, we have a cost model that's fully burdened. So I can take customers as a multi-tenant cloud environment from anywhere and not cost the Air Force or the Intel community any more money than what we were spending on supporting ourselves initially to get that capability running. But I'm scaling it out to all these customers who don't have to duplicate the effort from scratch and can just buy into what they need to scale it out to them. And it doesn't cost us any more money to do that. It actually helps us. That model of doing business is very different and program offices are having a trouble wrapping their arms around it. They also wonder, well, who's prioritizing all these requirements that are coming from all these different directions with money to these teams? And so is there an issue of scale for that team to be able to hit a limit where they have to start saying, okay, I'm going to do you before you versus dynamically just doing, you know, 10 number one priorities. They're used to having one number one priority because there's one central funding source and there's one decision maker on what's going on for that one community. Now, that's completely upended. And so a lot of my time is being spent on trying to understand how we can make this work by doing, um, by turning these into sustainable programmatic POM funded types of central capabilities, keeping the customer funding flowing, keeping the scalability, keeping the agility, doing no harm to what is successful and what we all wanted to happen, but doesn't actually fit. And so when we start talking about things like when they're that large being called weapon systems and stuff, it comes with operational test requirements, for example. Well, the operational test community has a lot of different wickets that something would go through. Well, in an agile software development, I mean, I could be putting out capability updates multiple times a day, even depending on how mature my team is. How does that work with the operational test community? Who's accepting that those things are coming with the appropriate rigor to be put into operations? Well, the paradigm shifted and we have to understand that. So now we're making smaller updates, not mega updates to these things that have smaller risk associated with them. We have blue-green deployments where some subsets of customers are getting the update and others are not. We have test environments where we never did before. We have dev test and prod zones that you have to move through and we have automated testing and regression testing that we can do. Those things, are not incorporated into how we normally do business because that has never really been available. So how does the operational test community now accept the automated testing that we're doing to this code in a repeatable small fashion that's happening daily, going into production and being used in real world operations now that has never gone through any of this. This is so 
that is taking up a lot of time. Uh, software is still being treated as hardware. When I talk to aircrafts, depending on which aircraft you, you talk to, they'll come in for their block upgrades. They'll replace all their stuff with their hardware. And that's when they're going to do their software replacements and upgrades. And they're going to test it all together. And then they're going to hand you back a new block upgrade. Well, aircrafts is basically just a flying data center. The back of the plane, the front of the plane are two different things. And so you should not be just updating windows every three years when you do a block upgrade like your hardware. So how do we treat and instill in the culture that software, the agility of software to preserve that has to be treated differently fundamentally than our processes that we used to use when we were doing all of this in an industrial age manner centered around hardware. And so that is one of my big priorities right now across the board, across all the portfolios and all the great things that we're doing in our inaction and operations doing things. How do we get those into the institutionalized system, but do no harm at the same time? And so that's, that's a toughie. If we go down to like other areas specifically and my priorities say for data right now, our, our data platform, getting that out to the edge. We have a lot of work happening with classified cloud at the edge and extending it really in two prongs. One prong is how do I get sensor data ingest into classified cloud in a low latency, high bandwidth fashion, kind of like an IoT model where I'm doing processing at the edge and I'm also redistributing some of that uh, data to the regional needs and then bringing that back into classified cloud and direct connect services, but also the data platform and how that can do kind of a replication and resynchronization when it's reconnected and connection across between secret and TS. And so some of the difficulty and challenge there is regional cross-domain solutions and how we can actually move between the classifications of our data uh, locally without having to come back to the continental United States to do it. So that's one big part there. And furthering the standards for data sharing ontologies uh, are always uh, a big part of our activity. We have to have the foundation to make data usable, discoverable, and shareable. So that is not just on us. That's the whole IC has services of common concern and various parts of that that we are sharing into and, and using um, to make sure that we are following that. We're, we're just in, plugged in and not having to recreate everything ourselves. Colonel, on that note, let's take a quick break. We come back, we'll continue our conversation. My guest today is Colonel Michael Majesse, the Air Force Intelligence Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Colonel Michael Majesse, the Air Force Intelligence Chief Information Officer. Michael, I want to continue to talk about your priorities. Let's shift over to the cloud. What are you moving to the cloud? What are your workloads? What's your plan to use more cloud services? From a cloud perspective, cloud office governance is a big deal, especially in light of JWCC now. Really, I, I had only focused on C2S, C2E type of access through that contract vehicle and our IC program office for that. We now have this thing as the JEDI replacement called JWCC under DOD and uh, their mandates for the non-Intel customers to be using that contract vehicle. But the contract vehicle is just that. It's just a contract vehicle. The 
governance that goes into making sure that how you use the cloud is in place and the guardrails, the shared inherited controls that you get when you use in this way, the visibility and security cognizance of what's going on in commercial cloud at any given time by the, the CIO is super important. And trying to tame the wild west while not having to slow people down and having an understanding that when you do come through the cloud office, yes, there's going to be guardrails in place, but you're also getting to go faster and you're going to be more successful long-term because you're already ingesting the work that's been done. You don't have to do again. And you are now from the beginning working with your authorizing official with those requirements and all the way through going to be getting to a successful production environment that's not a surprise when you're ready to just do it and you just showed up out of nowhere. So there's a lot of goodness to the cloud offices, but we can't just treat this as like a contract vehicle to get to commoditized hardware, someone else's computer. It's way more than that. Understanding that the technology ecosystems that we're going into and all the managed services and all of the capabilities that now are super exponentially faster means that people with that contract could do a lot in much shorter period of time, which before we probably would have caught uh, now could go into production extremely quickly without with very little oversight unless we get these guardrails put into place on how we do this properly. And this is the time, I said this before, this is a, a great period in history where we don't get this very often. We get to deliver IT services in a fundamentally different way without all the baggage of the tech debt that we've accrued over, over time because we have a greenfield environment now where we can actually put into place all the things we wish we had in place in our legacy environment. This is the time to put those things there because once they get out there and it's wild west it's really hard to pull it back in i was going to jump in real quick only because uh we're pushing up against the clock and, and i definitely you mentioned c2e you mentioned jwcc what's the balance you're trying to strike there uh you're almost getting pulled in two directions with two different options are, are, is there a strategy in terms of well we'll use c2e for this and we'll use jwcc for that or is it going to be on a case-by-case basis there's not a lot to decide there. If you're Intel, you use C2E. And if you're not Intel, you use JWCC. That's basically the basic decision tree there. Colonel, I've kept you for a long time. You've been very generous with your time. So uh, I'm going to say thank you and let you go. And, and we're going to have you back on again. Uh, so let me thank my guest. Colonel Michael Majesse is the Air Force Intelligence Chief Information Officer and Chief Data Officer. Colonel, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, sure. This was great. It's lots of fun. And I, I enjoy talking about this uh, stuff. It's just, it, it uh, really excites me. So um, I'm glad that I can spread the word and um, would love to talk more. So thank you. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 